Welcome to Advent season. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Uh, how many of you guys are more excited for Christmas this year than last? Yeah, right? I, I get a sense that it's going to be a little bit, can we say normal? I don't know about normal. But I'm excited about this Advent preaching series this year. You can see on the screen, it's called Hope of the Ages. So four weeks designed to count us down to the celebration of the birth of the Savior. Now, in a general sense, we understand why the story of Christmas gives us hope. But in this preaching series, what we're going to do is go a little bit deeper by looking at four unique dispensations or ages where God has acted in very specific ways to give His people hope for the future. So here's how it's going to get laid out. Today, we're looking at the very beginning of creation. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the promise of hope in the old, under the Old Covenant. Then the following week, the realized hope that we have in the New Covenant. And then we'll finish on December 19th, the week of Christmas Day, by looking at the hope of Christ in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state. So what that means is we're starting in Genesis today. We're going all the way to the Revelation in week number four. So we're going to cover the whole gamut of the Bible. Excited? Good. Now, what if I told you that eternal hope for God's people was decreed even before the world was made? That we were given a hope even before the foundations of the world were put in place. And what if I told you that that hope was revealed to us in the earliest stages of time itself? Would you be surprised by that? I don't have to tell you guys today that the world around us is filled with evil. And because of that, we are all bumping into people each and every day who are struggling to find hope. Right? It's true. People are, people are wondering, they're shaken right now, and they're wondering, do I have any hope? Now, when I speak about evil, I'm not talking about just the most obvious forms of it. We all know things like war and murder and rape and disease and poverty, things of that nature. I'm talking even about the less obvious things. All the ways that our world, maybe you've noticed this, is growing very, very cold. Our world is growing very, very fragmented right now. Basic things like kindness and empathy seem to be in decline. Other things like lawlessness and hatred and tribalism seem to be growing. Extreme forms of violence are on the rise. There are whispers online of crazy ideas like revolution and genocide and things of that nature. And I could go on and on. to I could spend the next half hour talking about all the evil in our world right now. But here are the key questions that we should ponder as we dive into this series. Do we as believers, do we have an answer for evil? Is there an answer out there? Is there a remedy to the wickedness that is happening all around us right now? In short, is there any real hope? If we don't have it, then man, the world is lost, right? We're the ones that are supposed to have hope. As people out there are struggling with it, we should be sure about the hope that we have. Now, it's interesting. The great philosophers, the great thinkers of our day, they really struggle with the types of questions that I just posed. They have a real hard time defining evil. They just, it's a very sticky situation for them because in order to define evil, they have to define good, and that's hard for them to do apart from religion. <laughs> and that's the third rail that they will never, ever touch. So the philosophers of this world have no good answers or solutions for the bad things that are happening around us right now. All they can do is say, well, look, it's just a brute fact of existence. Now, some will put some suggestion up to say, well, if we could just fix all of our social ills, then maybe evil will go away. Others will say that the remedy for, for man is to become more enlightened 
If we can just learn more from our past and try harder to do better in the future, then we will eliminate evil on the earth. But how has that worked out? It hasn't worked out well at all in the past. And after all, how do you define what better is? So here's the good news. According to God, there are answers. And yes, we have a wonderful, blessed, living future hope. Amen? Grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want you to find verse 8. And I want to start this morning by making some just some general observations about these early chapters of the book of Genesis. You may know this, you may not, I don't know, but the first 11 chapters of Genesis, right up to the point of the introduction of Abraham, which is in chapter 12, those 11 chapters put in motion the historical and spiritual arc of the entire Bible. So we really, I know a lot of people today want to write them off as, as, a, as one big metaphor or just poetic language, but the problem is, without these chapters in Genesis, we really have no foundation for the rest of Scripture. So this matters. So let me give you just four things in particular to take notice of about Genesis. Number one, Genesis puts us in our rightful place as image-bearing creatures. That's so important. It tells us that we're not random blobs of highly evolved protoplasm, right? Among creation, we are altogether unique. We have been made in God's likeness, and we have been created to know and enjoy and reflect our Creator. That's number one. Number two, Genesis also puts us in our rightful place as sinners. So the first one, man, we celebrate that all day long, right? The second one's a little bit tougher. We are sinners. The world desperately wants to convince you that people are essentially good. We hear this all the time, right? Even though our eyes tell us something different, we look at it and we go, how can that possibly be true? Because we see all the evil around us. Genesis confronts us with the reality about our sin. It tells us about this catastrophic fall from grace that our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, experienced. And as a result of that, we've all become, by nature, corrupted and guilty before God. Those two things are really, really important. Third thing is, Genesis reveals to us the mediating grace of God. We're going to see that God's Redeemer, just he didn't just appear in first century Palestine, like, oh, here he is, right? He'd been promised from the very, very beginning, a son of Eve, who will come and destroy evil and death and bring salvation to the world. So we should marvel at the unity of, of God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, the redemptive plan has been set in place and it will come to fruition. Number four, you see there, Genesis gives us the hope of a consummated world that is full of worship. That's exciting, isn't it? The story from Genesis to Revelation is utterly comprehensive from the original creation to the new heavens and the new earth. And the end looks just like the beginning, only better. The restoration of God's garden becoming one extended temple of worship to Yahweh. The early chapters in Genesis give us all of these things. And so it's so important to know that. All right, let's look at our text. Most of us know the background here of Genesis 3, but let me really quickly go through it. Our story, of course, begins in chapters 1 and 2. God creates the heavens and the earth, and he progressively creates different features of the universe. And at the end of each day, what does God say about his creation? It's good. Amen. And in this new world, God freely dwells with his image bearers, with Adam and Eve, right, in a completely unspoiled atmosphere. So this first couple are on divine turf, right? They are in God's beautiful garden, and they, this is so amazing, they get to walk daily with the Creator. 
in the cool of the evening, right? They get to walk with the Creator. Amazing stuff. And yet into this perfect world comes an angelic dissenter. He appears on the scene, a malcontent from God's own divine counsel who has already at this point been judged, cast out of the heavens, but is still bent on spoiling what God has done. The text tells us that this serpentine being tempts Eve to sin, and then Adam joins her in that sin. They eat from the one thing they can't eat from, right? The one, and isn't this just like humanity, right? The one thing they're said, you cannot do this, that's what they do. Now their spiritual eyes are opened. And for the first time, they experience the pangs of conscious guilt. They realize that they're naked, and so they cover themselves out of shame, right? They cover themselves with fig leaves. They're ashamed before God, and they hide from Him, which is pretty amazing considering they know who He is. So look at verse 8 now. They, the first couple, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can you imagine? Hiding in the trees. And the Lord God called to the man. To who? To the man. The leader, right? And said to him, where are you? Where are you? Notice how gracious God is. We sometimes, get, we, we sometimes look at the story, we get, a, we get a little off balance. See the grace in this. God knows already what Adam and Eve have done. He knows it, right? He knows that they've rebelled against his command, yet he graciously seeks after them. And he asks a simple question, where are you? What happened? Where are you? Now, whenever God asks a question, is he seeking information? <laughs> no, he knows the answer, right? But he's trying to elicit a response from Adam. Verse 10, he, Adam, said, you can almost picture me, comes out from behind the tree, oh, God caught me. So he comes out and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, Lord, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So here comes the follow-up question, to which, again, God knows the answer, but here comes the follow-up question. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And of course he had. That's exactly how he's come to this feeling, right? He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is how he acquired those new feelings of guilt and shame. His eyes have now been opened to his own corruption. But now he's going to do what we all have a tendency to do, Every single person in this room, including me, rather than own the sin, we're going to blame somebody. Or we're going to blame our circumstances, right? Verse 12, the man said, well, the woman who you gave to me, right, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So notice there, he does admit the sin. I ate, he says. He does admit it. But he points the finger at not only Eve, but in a shocking display of foolishness, he actually blames God for giving Eve this, this precious gift that he was so happy about before. He now blames God for giving her to himself. Amazing. But then God turns to Eve, verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? There's the third question that God asks, knowing the answer completely. Again, designed to elicit a response from her. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, she admits it as well. I ate. She owns that sin, but like her husband, she tries to blame shift, right? She says, well, it was really the serpent that's responsible. Okay, so what do you do if you're God in that moment? Both of them said, okay, I ate it. Both of them tried to shift the blame. In that moment, God would have been perfectly justified to strike them dead and start over again with a new couple. True? Could have struck them dead. But the fact that he doesn't is a, just an act of pure grace and love. 
But make sure you see this. God isn't just going to let that sin slide, right? To do that would be a violation of his perfect justice. So punishment will come, and it will come in a couple of forms. First of all, there will be a curse upon their lives that will bring, first of all, agony to childbirth, right? And constant toil in all of their work. So God had given this glorious mission, and now that glorious mission is going to become a slog, It's going to become drudgery, right? It's going to become a life of toil that's filled now with trials and violence and pain. That's first of all. Second of all, they're going to be expelled from the garden, expelled from the direct presence of God. That is the part of the punishment that would have been felt the most immediately, right? You're gone, you're out, and you cannot come back. That is really painful. And third, ultimately down the road, they're going to physically die now. Death will come. You are dust, God says, and to dust you will return. Now, those are serious consequences, but I still want you to see in this story both the grace and the hope that God provides here. This is not really, some people read this and it's like, this is a story of God just lowering the boom on Adam and Eve, but he has graciously sought them out and now he's about to provide for a restoration. Into this seemingly hopeless situation, he's going to declare a living hope that's going to now drive the remainder of God's revelation in the Old Testament. It's going to become the theme of everything we read, especially in the prophets. Once Adam and Eve acknowledge that they had eaten of the tree, it's interesting what God does next. He turns towards the serpent and he becomes Adam and Eve's defenders. He becomes their defender. And what a great lesson this is. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but When we try to justify our sin, when we try to defend ourselves, defend our sin, we're going to find ourselves feeling these same pangs of guilt and shame because we know the truth, but we'll try to justify it or defend it. But when we stop defending ourselves and we confess our sin and we come to God, we approach His throne and we repent before Him, we find out that we have an advocate who will come to our aid. And that's a really important lesson that comes out of this. Now, keep in mind that God had questioned Adam. He questioned Eve because he wanted to lead them to repentance. But there's no questions for the serpent. And there's no hope of pardon for him. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, the best way to understand this, we've heard this a million times, right? Is that this is, this is figurative language here. It's true that snakes travel on their bellies, but no, they don't eat dust. This picture of eating dust is a biblical metaphor for humiliation, and that is the core of this curse. The serpent is going to have to live the rest of his days in constant humiliation. He's always going to be seeking to usurp God's power and position, but he will never attain it. So the prophetic judgment against the serpent is you will live the rest of your existence in constant humiliation and defeat. Man, that's painful. It's actually less painful to be knocked out of existence, but to continue to exist for, for thousands of years and to be constantly frustrated and ultimately lose is a heavy judgment. Now, verse 15. This is our key verse for the morning. This is where we're going to spend all of our time. And I will, that's God, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So so this verse is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, technical term, the first gospel. The first gospel. Only two and a half chapters into the Bible, right? At the very first sight of human corruption, 
we see that already God is promising a redeemer and a restorer. Somebody who's going to come and restore what is lost because of this first sin. Friends, this is the dawning of the first light of the gospel on earth, right here in Genesis chapter 3. God promises his beloved image bearers ultimate victory over the serpent. And from the serpent's perspective, this is where he learns that God has a plan for him too, that there is a coming a time when he will be finally judged and his existence will be extinguished. This is a big moment. This is a huge moment that, again, pushes us into the Old Testament and beyond, all the way, all the way to the eternal state. So we're going to do a sidebar now. We're going to just stop there for a second. We'll come back and we'll break down verse 15 some more, but a sidebar. Before we go any further, we should remember that nothing that we just read about in Genesis 3 came as a surprise to God. None of it. And you're like, well, how can that be? Are you telling me God wanted the fall to happen? If you ask the average Christian on the street, is God sovereign? All of them will say yes. But if you ask them to define what that actually means, like how sovereign, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers. So we should look at this, right? As we begin to talk about some difficult truths and some long ago prophecies, it's imperative that we understand just how sovereign God really is. And to get to that, I want to put a verse on the screen or passage. It's not a lot, but it's, it's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Sorry about the one spot. But I want you to read, this is a mind-blowing passage. Now, I, I put it up there in the CSB because it's a little bit easier to read. But look at the language that I've underlined in particular. Here's what it says. He, God, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. That is an entire sermon series right there. How do you define all of those things that are underlined there? His will, his good pleasure, what he purposed, his plan, how he brings everything together, his predestining, and then again, his plan, which includes working out everything in agreement with his purpose and his will. Wow. It'll give you a headache to try to grasp all the ways that God just, or Paul just described what we call God's eternal decree. Now let me try to define that term for you. God's decree is a single, eternal, internal act of God whereby he wills and orders all things that take place in our world. So three key things here. It's said to be this decree to be eternal because it precedes creation. God decreed all things even before Genesis 1.1. It's said to be single because although it's unfolding in successive moments in time, it's still single. It doesn't change at all in any way. God has a single will, a single purpose, and a single plan. It never changes. And it's said to be internal because it was worked out among the persons of the Godhead in God's perfect oneness, God's decree. Now, I'll give you a couple other book definitions so that you can grasp this. The Westminster Catechism says, It's His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology calls it 
the comprehensive plan for the world and history which God sovereignly established in eternity. And then Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Terms. Everybody should have this book, by the way. How many of you guys have a Muller's? If you went, yeah, if you went to seminary, you've, you've got a Muller's. Muller, <laughs> nerd, Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Terms really simply says, an eternal decree according to which God wills, those are the things that he desires internally, and then orders all things, that's the external means by which he carries out his desires. Three really simple book definitions. Now, it's important to understand that you and I and the rest of humanity, we are not a party to God's decree. It was not addressed to us. It's not for us to know. Contained in God's decree are mysteries that God keeps to himself. So we say that God has both a secret will, things that, again, only the the persons of the Godhead understand, and a revealed will, which is everything that he's told us about himself and about our world and about us in where? In the Bible. Secret will, revealed will. And biblically, there are hints about the decree found not just in Ephesians 1, but all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, the books of Job and Jeremiah and Isaiah and in the Psalms, you hear similar language to what we read about in Ephesians 1. God's counsel, God's will, God's good pleasure. In Peter's sermon, his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, he speaks of God's predetermined plan, single. God's predetermined plan. Later, he prays to God asking for whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Again, single, purpose. In Ephesians 3, Paul speaks of this. The manifold, complete wisdom of God in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. And of course, everybody's favorite verse, Romans 8, 28. Everybody loves it. God is working how many things out? All things for good, for those who love him, right? Man, we count on that verse. Have you ever thought, how does he do that? How does he work all those things out for everybody who loves him so that it all works out completely as he wants it to work out? He's decreed everything beforehand. That's how. That's the only way to get 100% of the time all things to work out for the good of every single person who loves him. Is if God is utterly sovereign and he's decreed all things. Now, I can say a whole lot more about this and I know it raises some questions right now. Your minds are spinning like, well, what about this? What about that? And maybe at some point we'll have more time to, to work through that. Maybe it'll be an underground topic, Adam. But here are some bullet points that relate to the decree and our preaching series that we'll keep bumping up against in this series. Nothing in this world is accidental. So let's start there. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is haphazard. Nothing is uncertain. There is no such thing as lucky. That's number one. All things in God's decree are fixed and certain and unchangeable and absolute. God's decree includes the choices and actions of free and voluntary agents like us, even the sinful choices that men and women make. That's heavy. That means this, that the same decree which ordains the moral law that prohibits and punishes sin also ordains that sin will occur without God becoming the author of sin. Heavy. In other words, God permits his creatures to choose wrongly. He decrees at times not to hinder the sinful self-determination of the human will. But in his sovereignty, he also decreed to regulate and control the results of man's sinful choices. 
right? And he purposes to overrule our sin and the evil that comes out of it and then fits all that into his will in a way that it ultimately ends up being good. <laughs> and there, thereby brings honor and glory to himself in all of that. Now, I know that's really, that's, you, you might have to rewind this and listen to it again. And I said we could get into it more later. But this is how God operates. I sometimes joke that God has an operating system and a hard drive that is so massive that we can't fathom it, right? How does all this work together? And in case you were wondering, yes, human beings still bear responsible for every sin they commit because when we choose to sin as voluntary agents, we really do want to sin. We do make a choice to sin, right? So we owe a debt for that, and every single debt for sin will be paid, either by you and I or by Christ. But it will be accounted for. The eternal decree. Now, if all that hurts your brain, I get it. You can choose to, to approach that the same way Martin Luther did. He's a pretty smart guy. But back in the day when he was teaching at University of Wittenberg, an ambitious theologian, student of his, asked him this question. He said, Professor, what was God doing before he created the world? You know what Luther said? He was busy creating hell for foolish theologians who asked that type of question. <laughs> Okay, so there's some things we go, I'm not sure I want to even delve into that. That's so heavy. But I want you to understand, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his utter and complete comprehensive sovereignty over all things, including the fall. Including the fall. Okay, back to our passage in Genesis 3. That's going to come into play later on. Let's dig into verse 15. First phrase, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, is there more going on here than just a, a physical enmity between women and snakes? Um, now, I'm pretty convinced that most women do hate snakes. Not my daughter, by the way. She loves snakes. She does. Talk to her about it later. She loves snakes. But most women do hate snakes. But what's being described here is much bigger. This is a cosmic struggle of epic proportions. By the word, that word enmity, that's not a word that we generally use in English, right? In the original Hebrew, in its simple form, simplest form, it just means hatred. The CSB uses the word hostility, which I think is a good rendering as well. Hostility between you, Satan, and the woman. Now, the serpent's hatred of Eve was nothing new. That was already present in him. He already hated Eve in the sense that Satan saw Adam and Eve as rivals. They were objects of God's love. And so he saw them as targets that needed to be damaged or destroyed. What changes here is Eve's attitude towards the serpent. Remember, we covered this weeks ago in our John series. We talked about how, how before the fall, there's no indication that Eve was afraid of the serpent that approached her, approached her that there was any sense of, of, of fear at all, okay? no antagonism towards him, but now that changes. And look who puts that hostility between Satan and the woman. It's God himself. Okay, this isn't something that Eve figured out or Eve did on her own. It's God who does this. So there's an implicit blessing in this enmity, right? We call this, this is a just war that God establishes here. He purposely injects a hostility between Satan and the woman to drive a wedge between her and the one who wants to hurt her. That's actually a gracious thing, isn't it? No longer will the woman be drawn to the enticing words of Satan. God establishes a barrier between her and the enemy of her soul. God is very gracious in that. Now, why does, 
Why does God go to the woman to do this and not to Adam? Well, first of all, it was the woman who was seduced, right? So the Lord begins to apply his remedy at the very spot of the attack. But more importantly, it establishes the woman's role in redemption. She plays the key role, right? Because God will work through the woman to bring his redeemer into the world. So the woman plays a huge role here. Let's look at the second phrase now in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, Satan, and her seed. Okay, again, God is addressing the serpent. Now that language regarding seed is so important for biblical theology. I cannot stress this enough. It is so, so important to to all of biblical theology, but especially in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is zerah. It's used 229 times in the Old Testament. 59 times alone in Genesis. So it's important. Both the ESV and the CSB use a more familiar English term, offspring, which helps us to understand what it means. But seed is the best rendering here. I will put enmity between your offspring or your seed, Satan, and her offspring. So again, we see God is the one who establishes this warfare. Now this warfare is going to go beyond just the audience in that moment. It's going to go down the line, generational lines, to all of their descendants, including us today. This is still going on, and that's what we have to see here. Now, another sidebar. It's interesting that some liberal scholars, they've suggested in the Genesis 3.15, has no messianic meaning at all. They would say it's, it's just an animal kingdom thing, right? It's just humans and snakes have learned to hate each other. And what they do is they try to make the case that the early church fathers, they sort of allegorize this, this verse in order to fit it into their Christocentric worldview. That's sort of how the argument goes. But here's the problem with that. When you look ahead in the book of Genesis to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, you hear the exact same language. Let me, let's put it on the screen there. Genesis twenty two fifteen, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. So this is a reference back to when Abraham showed that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, right? And in doing that, you see clear messianic parallels with Jesus, God's one and only son, correct? Continuing on, verse 17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, Abraham, and I will greatly multiply your seed, same word, as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Victory, right? In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Very similar language. This establishes Abraham as part of that same line of the Redeemer that was promised to Eve back in Genesis 3. So this language about seed becomes the fountainhead of the hope of the Old Testament scriptures. It becomes the root from which the entire promise of the Messiah will grow, this concept of seed. And given the context in which the the serpent has deceived Eve and brought the curse upon creation, it is so fitting that it's her seed that will be the one to undo the damage. In other words, the score is going to be settled through her lineage. Very important. By the way, one more sidebar. There's a whole bunch of rabbit trails, as you can see, that come off this passage. Culturally, the genetic line of a person in ancient times came from the male, not the female. Right? It's the seed of the man that drives all the genealogies in the Bible. But look at this, the seed of the woman. Very unusual language. 
But looking back now from the New Testament perspective, we now know that the promised Redeemer is not the product of a man's seed at all. How beautiful, right? Humanly speaking, he is only the product of a woman. So yeah, we see in this, it's legitimate to see the first hint of what's coming, the virgin birth of Christ. Right here in Genesis 3. God's Messiah will be the only human being in all of history to arrive as the physical offspring of a woman only. Beautiful, right? So from the beginning then, we have two groups of people described in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. These are the same two divisions which the Bible consistently divides the human race, right? These two groups, the redeemed and the unredeemed, right? All nations, all generations are a part of it. It's not racial, it's not national, it's not ethnic, it is spiritual. Two groups, the redeemed and the unredeemed. So, who are the descendants then? Who are these offspring exactly? Well, understand the serpent, he's an angelic being, right? So he doesn't have biological descendants, but he does have human followers who will join him on his God-hating path, right? All those that oppose God's kingdom are reckoned to be the seed of the serpent. And by the way, we just finished, or we just finished John chapter 8. Uh, how many weeks ago was that? Many, many weeks ago. Did you remember what Jesus said when he was talking to the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. They're the seed of the serpent. Jesus is carrying that through. And in subsequent chapters after Genesis 3, it becomes immediately obvious who is in which of these two lines, these two descendants, right? In Genesis 4, we have who? We have Cain, the murderer, just like his father, the serpent. He's the first murderer, right? And even though he's a physical son of Eve, Cain is not in the redemptive line. He's not reckoned as part of the seed of the woman. In fact, John the Apostle even addresses this. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, he says of Cain, he was of the evil one. Cain. Two chapters later in Genesis 6, we read that wickedness has spread across the entire earth and now we have the presence of these beings called the Nephilim, the seed of the serpent. Genesis 11, you have all these people gathering at Babel to build this great tower. All of these incidents here in these first 11 chapters of Genesis are snapshots of the seed of the serpent given to us so that we can see the distinction between these two groups. And then we have the, the seed of the woman, right? Obviously, that can't be all of mankind. What it refers to is those collectively who will battle against the serpent and the seed of the serpent. And again, you get snapshots right there in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 4, the Lord gives to Eve a replacement for Abel who was killed. Who is that replacement? Seth. Seth plays a really important role. It's from Seth that the seed of the woman descends. Next chapter, Genesis 5, we read about Enoch, and it says that he walked with God. And then in chapter 6, we get the very first preacher of God's word. We get Noah. So you see the distinction between these groups right there in these foundational chapters of Genesis. And friends, as Christ followers, that line is ours, the seed of the woman, right? And therefore, the promises, all the promises of future hope belong to us just as much as it belonged to them. That's where we're at today. Okay, let's finish verse 15. Remember, we started with two individuals, the serpent and the woman. Then the hostility became collective, 
right? It extended to the seeds of both of those two. Now the language turns back to what appears to be individual. It says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what this looks like is hand-to-hand combat, right? Between two individuals that represent those two groups I just talked about. This is the cosmic struggle of the ages. The redeemed versus the unredeemed. And the victory obviously belongs to the individual who comes from the seed of the woman. And the masculine pronouns that you see there tell us that the redeemer is going to be a man, but he's going to be born of a woman. Paul talks about it in Galatians 4.4, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. So it all comes first full circle here. So the day's coming, God says to the serpent, when you will be defeated and removed from the earth. But notice here, it's not going to, become, it's not going to happen easily. It's not going to happen without struggle and pain. In fact, both sides are going to suffer injury. That's what the verse indicates, right? For a human to bruise someone, and really the better rendering, the CSB says strike, a strike to the head is a mortal blow, isn't it? It kills. But a strike to the heel or a bite on the heel, it's painful. Anybody ever had a bite on your heel? It changed your life. <laughs> it's painful. But it's not life-threatening. You'll get over it. Metaphorically, the heel was the part of the Redeemer that was within the serpent's reach. And we have to understand that Jesus, in coming into the world and taking on human nature, voluntarily put himself inside of Satan's domain. He's the God of this age, right? The God of this world, so that the enemy could take a shot at him. Can't forget that. He put himself there in human nature, knowing that the serpent would bite at him. And so from our vantage point 2,000 years later, we can better understand what that is. What does it mean that Jesus was bit on the heel? Well, think about it. Think about the rejection that Jesus suffered at the hands of his own people. Think about the darkness that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about the constant opposition he dealt with in Jerusalem. Think about the betrayal of Judas, the demonic hostility of Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin. And then, of course, you have the scourging and the crucifixion and the physical death of the God-man on the cross. All of those things are part of the bruising of his heel, very real damage done to him by those who are of the evil one the seed of the serpent. Spurgeon actually comments on this. He says, That bruised heel was painful enough. Behold our Lord in His human nature, sorely bruised. He was betrayed, bound, accused, buffeted, scourged, spit upon. He was nailed to the cross. He hung there in thirst and fever and darkness and desertion. That's hard to read, isn't it? Our Lord Right, The one who loved us, who loves us now. The one who was willing to take our place on that cross. To have his body broken, to have his blood shed. That's painful. But here's the hope. Here's the hope of the gospel in Genesis 3. This, this, is, this, is, where all, this is where the beauty of the picture comes out. In the midst of that pain, here's where the beauty comes out. At the cross, in what appeared to be a great cosmic victory for the serpent and his seed, Right? It looked like it was going to be a crushing defeat for the seed of the woman. In reality, it was turned upside down completely. The cross turns out to be the crushing blow to the head of the serpent. Colossians 2 talks about it. 
He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Remember, humiliation was the judgment. Disgraced them publicly, he triumphed over them in him, in Christ. So when Christ atoned for our sins on that cross, the serpent was disarmed and defeated. Think about this for a second. The one eternally destructive weapon that he could wield against you, right? The accusation that you're guilty before God because of your sin. That whole weapon was taken out of his hand. It was removed. When Christ died in your place, that accusation was nullified. It was a weapon he couldn't use any longer, right? And now there's nothing that Satan can do, nothing that he can say that will separate you from the love of Christ. That's a victory. That's the hope of the gospel right there. What seemed like Satan's moment of triumph was actually his greatest defeat. In fact, unbeknownst to him, in this great twist of irony, his seed crucified the Lord of glory and actually carried out the sovereign purposes of God's eternal decree. They didn't know they were doing it. Satan's own seed Accomplish God's perfect will. It's the hope of the gospel. Two and a half chapters into the Bible, folks. The outcome is not in doubt. The victory lies with the seed of the woman, with God's Redeemer, and this is where our hope is found. The serpent's defeat has been decreed. It was actualized at that cross. Now it's just a matter of time before the end comes and his defeat is made permanent forever and ever. Now, when's that going to happen? I wish I knew. As Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, not as we count slowness. Long ago, he decreed that there is a specific time set for the son's return, and it will happen because his decree is sure. It will happen on his schedule, not ours. Now, one of the coolest aspects of this whole story, and I read this verse last Sunday. I slipped it into my Thanksgiving epistle, and I'm not sure if you caught it, but it's such a cool passage The promise of cosmic victory over the serpent is something that we actually participate in. As the seed of the woman, we get a piece of this, okay? It's Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because we're in the line, the seed of the woman, we participated. Yeah, our representative won the victory, but we get to stomp all over that dude. We get to crush him under our feet. Not because we're anything special, but because Christ has won the victory. So the promise of full future victory includes, get this, someday the destruction of evil. Wiping it out. The power of evil destroyed. The complete elimination of the serpent's demonic influence over this world. Once the serpent is done away with, the world will be able to be brought back, restored to its original state. Back to Eden, only better. No effects of the curse, no sin, no sickness, no pain, no death. And, the best of all, will full restoration of our relationship with God. Allowing God to dwell once again with His people, as in the days of Adam and Eve in the garden. Amazing. Two and a half chapters in. And it's speaking of something that happened even before Genesis 1-1. The decree. 
All right, let's wrap up. I, I see your wheels turning. That's good. Notice that we're talking here, guys. This is, we're talking about primeval history. This is a really, really old story. But when you walk out of this building today, know that that same struggle is still going on. This is what we sometimes forget. The same struggle is going on today. Is there not a reason why we talk about spiritual warfare happening all around us? There's not a reason why we're commanded to put on the armor of God each and every day. Is there not a reason why the New Testament describes that there's a war going on us between the spirit and the flesh? We're at war. We're all participating in this ancient battle that was decreed and established by God as a just war long ago. So if you're found in Christ this morning, you are a child of light. We are children of light in a world of darkness. Of course there's going to be a fight. We stumble into our day and we don't even think about this. We're children of light walking into a world of darkness. There's going to be a battle. And the sign of spiritual warfare in our lives is actually evidence of spiritual life in us. We forget this, right? Sometimes we look at our struggle over sin and we feel like we're losing and we're like, maybe I'm not redeemed. That is exactly what the serpent would want you to think. But the opposite is true. This passage reminds us that in all those whom God redeems, he plants within us a spiritual hostility toward the works of Satan such that we can no longer love and coddle and tolerate sin in our hearts or in our lives. So when we find ourselves fighting for holiness and the power of the Spirit, it is a beautiful sign that you have been made spiritually alive, that we're the seed of the woman. Now here's the question. Are you aware of that battle? Are you in that battle? That's an important question to ask ourselves. Am I aware that that battle's all around me all the time? Am I in the fight? Am I in the fight? For those of us who have been given this eternal hope, we have a calling and a duty to be in that fight. Let me say it again. For those of us who have been redeemed by the Lord, we have a calling and a duty to be in that fight, to be sharing our faith. That's a call and a duty, to share our faith as the time draws near. The return of Christ It's a call and a duty to share our faith. We have a calling and a duty to live out the one in others right here in this local body of Christ so that we strengthen the church to become a more effective force in this world. And we have a calling and a duty to purify ourselves as we wait for the Lord. John talks about this specifically. I'll put this verse and I'll wrap up with this. In 1 John chapter 3, John says, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We have a call and a duty to do that as we wait on the Lord. Are you getting ready? Anybody getting ready? Grant said it earlier this morning, Advent. What does it mean? It means coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, you are such a gracious God. We sometimes read over this story and we read right past how merciful you are, how long-suffering you are, how, God, you show us right there in the garden that rather than just zapping Adam and Eve and taking them out and starting over, Lord, that you showed them grace. Yes, you punished sin, but you showed them grace, Lord, and you showed them restoration. 
And so, God, we are so grateful this morning for all of us who are here this morning who are found in Christ, who are the seed of the woman, that you have marked us out before the foundations of the world that we would be saved. And so we sit here a humble people, Lord, praising your name. And I ask, God, that we would continue to see the battle around us, that we would not just sit on the sidelines, Lord, but you would cause us to get up and get in the fight because we know you're coming soon. Lord, help us to prepare well. Help us to watch for you and to fix our eyes upon the heavens, knowing that you're a faithful God who will fulfill all of your promises. Lord, thank you again for your faithfulness, for your grace. We praise you in the name of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.